I think the first meeting was with a guy. He is a dye maker. He owns a lot of CNC machines. I had to go there because I wanted to understand if he is able to make the dye for the product we are making. So when I went first, he just refused to even take my work. He just said like, "Oh, he's very busy, and you know, he doesn't have time to do small jobs." And I walked in the whole market, which is like just full of these kind of dye makers. and nobody was willing to take my work despite seeing so many people sitting idle their machines are idle there is no work over there but still they just don't want to do it so i hired somebody he is not even a technical person whom i hired he is like a just normal person who could uh, talk english pretty well he went there and he said the same thing to the same person and then this time this guy just took the work and there's not a very huge uh, time difference say like okay yeah, maybe he was busy at that time when i went and now he became free but that was not a situation so now there was a lot of technical questions which he wanted to ask so this guy obviously is not a technical person so he had no idea and since i'm the product designer i went with him to answer those questions and he would ask a question and he would just look at this guy and not me at all then i said the answer like you know this is the answer for this question and he would still not look at me and he would not even respond it's like i don't exist over there there would be like a silence and then this guy whom i hired he would repeat the same answer what i gave and then this guy would respond and ask another question it was like very uh, weird situation like at least five questions i answered like this and finally i like asked the guy like why are you doing like this why can't you even look at me i what is wrong I was a person right and I'm the person who's answering all your questions and he just looked at this guy and said we'll do your work but next time please don't get this lady here Hello welcome to in the field I'm Samyukta Varma and I'm Radhika Vishwanathan If you're joining us for the first time or if you just need a reminder, Radhika and I are the co-hosts of In the Field, a podcast about the issues, ideas, organizations and people working on social issues and development in India. In this episode, we're going to talk about the debates around women and work, which is a topic that is particularly interesting to us. If you look through our back catalog, you'll find a number of episodes that address this topic. In 2021, we produced a series called Founders that spoke to women entrepreneurs and experts about the kinds of constraints women face while running businesses. We try to understand how women strategize to balance the demands and responsibilities of childcare, domestic issues amidst the prejudices they may face as business owners. In this episode, we look beyond the family. to talk about social interactions within business ecosystems to understand how they can make or break women-led businesses we're talking about the social networks that shape women entrepreneurship in india this special episode called connections is brought to you by lead at kriya university an action oriented research center based in india we're discussing some of the research learning and insights from lead's three program that studies women-led enterprises describe what a business ecosystem is we define at least for the purpose of this study 
the business ecosystem as all the key stakeholders, whether within a business or outside of it, that a female entrepreneur has to interact with. So within a business, that could be her employees, it could be her business partner, and outside of the business, it could be her suppliers, financiers, the customers she has to deal with on a day-to-day basis. A big part of the daily grind of running a business is interacting with your business ecosystem. They are essential stakeholders. Businesses that succeed often do so because they're able to form trusting, open relationships with these stakeholders, who are sometimes instrumental even in helping grow your business. For women entrepreneurs, like Kanika Bansal, who you heard at the beginning of this episode talk about her trials finding a dye maker, interactions with suppliers, investors, or employees can be complicated. Governments across the world, and certainly in India, have made clear commitments to support entrepreneurs. States see entrepreneurs as innovators, drivers of new areas of growth, and most crucially, as employers. However, women entrepreneurs have challenges, many of which are misunderstood, underreported, or simply invisible. And in the past two years of the pandemic, women-led businesses have been hit particularly hard. Studies report that women were eight times more likely to lose their jobs than men. A large proportion of women-led businesses shut down, and the time burden of care within the home went up considerably. I'm Ridhalya Narsimhan. I head STREE, which stands for Solutions for Transformative Rural Enterprises and Empowerment. My name is Aishwarya Joshi. I am a qualitative research specialist with the STREE team at LEED at Kriya University. Mridulya Narasimhan and Aishwarya Joshi work at LEED. LEED is trying to leverage the power of research, innovation and co-creation to solve complex, pressing socio-economic development challenges in the Global South. We're basically a team of passionate field researchers in the business of finding what's not working for a specific development challenge, why isn't it working, and what can we design and test to help solve for that specific challenge. Over the past year, Aishwarya and Mridulya have been studying women entrepreneurs in the state of Telangana. For us, it became important to understand why is the representation so low? Why is it only 14% of the enterprises are represented by women? And even within those 14% of enterprises, the job opportunities that's given to women is also very low. It's only about 30% or so. A study conducted by lead researchers during the pandemic showed that Of the 2,083 female enterprise owners they surveyed across four states, one in three women entrepreneurs had shut down their businesses, either temporarily or permanently. More importantly, over 50% of these women who reported permanent business closures were unlikely to start a business again. As we started digging deeper, into the challenges themselves. There was a lot about credit and skilling and information asymmetry, or maybe the social and cultural barriers. But we also wanted to understand what did women have to go through in their day-to-day journey, which was influencing their business decisions, which in turn was influencing the outcomes of their business or how they approach their business. There's a lot of studies that have been done on access to finance, building a customer base, finding talent, and how that often takes place through these networks. So these studies also show that, you know, business owners' genders can affect how these interactions pan out in real life. Our study tried to do something similar in that sense. The study's purpose was to see how 
women entrepreneurs interact with their ecosystem? Do they affect her business outcomes, for example? Are these outcomes and experiences, are they specific to her? Or do the male counterparts also face similar challenges? Do they also have similar interactions? Do they also have similar business outcomes? Any sort of intervention, any sort of program, scheme, policy that's developed should definitely you know, incorporate that gender nuance. It should look at the gendered needs of running an enterprise. Jimol Unni is an economist and professor at the Amrit Modi School of Management at Ahmedabad University. Much of her interests lie in labor economics, gender, and issues in urban economics and the informal economy. She's also one of the authors of a recent book on women entrepreneurship within the middle class. You know, that economist's definition of an entrepreneur as risk-taking, an innovator looking for an opportunity, that is not quite what it is. And there is this dimension of necessity entrepreneurs, which are different from the opportunity entrepreneurs. One of the questions Jimol addresses in her book is who makes up the entrepreneurs of the middle class? And what is it that drives them? There's this thing that, you know, uh, the middle class is increasing and so that's a very good thing and the poverty and so on is going down. And so then the middle class is really the drivers even of entrepreneurship and of growth as such. So that's a general idea. We wanted to say that the so-called middle class is not a homogeneous group. It has been growing in India, but it's not a homogeneous group. And if you look at the lower middle class, it is the largest and it consists of nearly 40% of our, our population. So we have this huge chunk of middle class, but then they are lower middle class. Person. So what do these people actually do? Jimal says that this is where opportunity and necessity comes up. So as far as risk taking is concerned, we found that the male opportunity entrepreneurs were, were mostly in the top one third of the middle class. Uh, they tended to display risk taking tendency. Whereas the women reported that they feared failure and they were risk averse. But at the same time, they took up entrepreneurship, partly because of their social need to do that or even due to necessity. And the interesting thing was that 30% of these really small enterprises were expanding their business. A common generalization about entrepreneurship is that business owners all want to scale. And scale becomes the objective or even their primary measure of success. Uh, Women entrepreneurs don't necessarily think in terms of only profit or only in terms of scaling up their enterprise. There are uh, more and more of women enterprises who are either this necessity-based variety or uh, they are actually, they have a social objective. They have some other reason for doing business rather than just uh, uh, trying to scale up. So you often find that women uh, enterprises don't scale up. That's not their objective function. Their objective function is something else. So as far as the ecosystem is concerned, all of these women did say that there was a gender bias in the system, both in the industry, the society, and in the government departments when they approached them to be able to, you know, get help. Vidya Sandararajan is a professor of economics at IIT Bombay. She's explored some of these biases that Jimol refers to. She works on labor markets from the point of view of firms, and is interested in questions like how do firms think of labor you know in terms of productivity in terms of payment in terms of the kind of workers they hire the kind of contracts they give the, the kind of choices the firms make and also are they giving way to a better pathway for workers recently more recently i've been interested in 
reforms, deregulating or delicensing. What has that been doing to uh, firms in India? And has that trickled down to improved labor productivity or wages or things like that? One of the aspects Vidya has worked on is formalization. When firms decide to register their businesses with the intention to become more sustainable or grow, we asked Vidya to tell us more about what women-led firms encounter and can affect the decisions they make, such as how they may choose to seek investment or hire or deal with the kinds of essential, everyday things that they need to operate. Women entrepreneurs are facing a huge block in terms of accessing finance. And that's understood from multiple sources. But the World Bank Enterprise Survey is sort of also helping us look at it from a very multidimensional perspective. So not only are they having poor access to finance, but it clearly shows that if the establishment as a female owner, it does not have a line of credit or loan from a financial institution. And also that a lot of the loan that the firms are receiving is actually from informal sources if the owner is female rather than male owners who tend to receive higher share of their credit from formal financial institutions. So that's something that I've consistently observed in the data. Each step in a business's formalization process requires interacting with people in institutions or in positions of power. This is what makes it so challenging for women. Women-run businesses are typically smaller will hire more contract labor and operate in industries that are seen to be more feminized. I've also looked at in the past the same sort of constraints that I talked about, right? Or even simple things like how long did they take to get an electricity connection, to get a water connection, to get a construction permit, or things like that. What I found was that in all of these cases, so for example, if you think about inspections by tax officials, electricity service, water connection, con construction-related permits. In all of this and more, there's clear evidence that if it's a female owner, there's higher likelihood that these outcomes are uh, negative or that a female owner is, is taking more time to get access to some of these regular everyday things that maybe it's, it's easier for male owners to get. And the outcomes of these interactions can be significant. If you want to think about numbers, I would say at least 8 to 10 percent uh, and even 15 in some cases in terms of uh, the likelihood that female owners face more difficulty in, uh, in terms of accessing some of these things. This translates to women-led firms having lower productivity or lower revenue per worker, which in turn translates to lower revenue for themselves. If there are constraints that keep small firms small, then that's going to definitely translate to the kind of labor they hire and hence perpetuate the productivity, poor productivity and low uh, poor outcomes that they face. So that's that's the vicious cycle in that sense. Both Jimol and Vidya's work point to the fact that there are so many factors that determine how social interactions play out in business ecosystems. And women are disadvantaged in many of these situations because of the circumstances under which they start businesses. See, manufacturing has long been a field which has been dominated by, you know, guys, like the males. And when a female enters into it, a lot of people just don't like it or look down upon you. This is Kanika Bansal, an entrepreneur based in Hyderabad. She's the person you heard earlier in this episode. Kanika started her company with her husband, who she met while studying in the UK. They both realized they had complementary skills and would make a great team together. 
Kanika is right when she says that it's not common to see a lot of women like her in the field that she's in. She runs a company that designs and manufactures wearable devices for the healthcare industry. That was one of the reasons why we moved back because being an entrepreneur was a dream for both of us. We had common goals, you can say. So we firmly believed in coming back to India and resolving certain issues, which is over here. Kanika is originally from Delhi, and when they moved back home, it was where her company was first based. I found that people over there don't even want to talk to me because I'm a woman founder. They don't want to even take any instructions or any discussions with a woman. So a lot of people would not even look at me on my face or they would not just, you know, talk to me. They'll just ignore me. Like, I don't exist there. Like the story she tells at the start of this episode, she has dealt with a series of similarly unpleasant experiences while trying to source parts for her manufacturing business. And then also many times we'll hear a no from people because if I go there and I've seen the difference, if I go there and I say like, okay, you know, what is the timeline you can do it in? They will just give me some like, you know, very big timelines like, oh, I'll do it like, you know, two months, three months like that, which makes me tell them like, okay, I don't want to do this. But if this same guy goes and says, okay, can you please reduce the timeline somehow? They will reduce it drastically. But with me, they'll just say clearly, no, we cannot. Not only were these interactions upsetting, they started to seriously impact her business. Kanika has had to develop strategies to circumvent the challenges she faces, costly ones, like how she hired a male employee to conduct negotiations with male customers or suppliers on her behalf because they were not comfortable with doing business deals with women, even if the woman was completely qualified to do so. I kind of outsourced it to some person who would get it done in China and get it back to me. So that is how the shortcut we took at the time. But now we are able to find proper vendors who don't mind or are not intimidated by a woman. Women entrepreneurs may be hesitant to work in manufacturing jobs for these reasons. There are instances where it's a little scary to just go to a workshop where I'm the only person and you know everybody just stares at you because these are not designed for women at all. So they are not women friendly. Like you will not find any washrooms for women over there. That's also one problem I face because a lot of girls would not be happy to go to this kind of environment because it's just not women friendly somehow. And I kind of go because I have to because if I don't do it, then there is no one else to do it. Her struggles in Delhi were one of the reasons why Kanika and her husband decided to move their business to Hyderabad. Lead's study has focused on documenting these kinds of stories, especially what influences the minor pivots as well as the big shifts. Since we were taking a qualitative lens to this, we wanted to capture more of the how and the why of the process rather than the what of it or the who of it. The lead study that ran in 2021 was based on seven groups of stakeholders in the ecosystem. Employees, customers, suppliers, financiers, enablers, mentors, and of course, family and community members. Each of these groups were identified as enabling entities supporting entrepreneurs in setting up and operating businesses in manufacturing, trade, and the service sectors. So in, instead of just asking, okay, how many times, for example, do you speak to your customers? We were more interested in, okay, how do you contact them? How did you first go about setting your customer base? How did you build that rapport? Why did you choose certain ways of interacting with your customers over others, etc.? By By asking for, like, you know, you said anecdotes, stories, their motivations, their experiences, we wanted to capture how those social interactions are actually panning out on, on a regular day-to-day basis. 
the entrepreneurs themselves were chosen to be representative of age, caste, religion, and other social indicators. So, for example, we've uh, spoken to women who are based in Hyderabad, say, you know, they have uh, at least a master's degree, if not a PhD. They've worked for years in the corporate field. Some of them may have actually gone abroad, maybe worked with the NHS or other such um, you know, uh, global sort of companies and in that kind of setup. And then they decide that they want to come back to India and start something of their own. So we've spoken to people like that who already have a sense of what they want to do or where they want to take the business. On the other hand, we've spoken with uh, women who, uh, you know, have just come together as a group, say, you know, an SAG that was already running. This large range of stakeholders helped the researchers see how women entrepreneurs were also potentially encouraged by their communities to start businesses, such as the case of this woman you'll hear Aishwarya tell us about. She wanted to start a little home-based business. She decided, you know, one day she went to uh, a family function and she saw that uh, someone that she knew was doing some embroidery on saris. And she said, okay, what is this? Uh, Does this pay? She said, yeah, it pays a little bit. And she said, okay, can you teach me this? And now uh, over the period of four to five years, this entrepreneur now has around 20 women from her locality who she almost sort of contracts that embroidery work out too. So, you know, she'll pay them per piece and she runs that business out of her home. Social capital is an important determinant of success. It opens doors to financing, mentorship and networks. And it's crucial for any business, whether it is small and home-based or even a larger entity. One of the surprising things that we came across was the fact that a lot of the respondents that we spoke to, male and female, did not either understand or acknowledge the extent to which one's social and cultural capital really contribute to the kind of interactions you have or the kind of chances you get, the kind of people you uh, get to speak with and meet and the kind of people who are open to the idea of listening to you talk about your business or helping you, or maybe pointing you towards people who can help. We know from research that men typically have wider, better developed networks than women. This means that it is easier for men to leverage their connections when they need to. While a lot of the people we spoke to um, had this notion uh, that gender, caste, education, all of that doesn't really affect entrepreneurial success. It's about drive, it's about your idea, etc. In fact, what we saw from the responses that we got was that a lot of the opportunities that may come your way as an entrepreneur are actually dependent precisely on these kinds of capital or this kind of privilege, right? For example, one of our respondents was talking about how a lot of the networking that she was able to do was through this IIM alumni reunion or these kind of networking events that they have. Now, you're not really going to be able to access that network or access those events if you've never studied at an IIM, right? So those chances then either they're given to you because of your social or cultural capital or the kind of exposure you've had, or you you don't have them and then you have to rely on other sources to maybe get that kind of input and get that kind of help or to initiate those interactions. That was something that that we found, even in terms of the way that our respondents would speak about their business. Certain kinds of entrepreneurs who 
had had the chance to maybe work in corporate sectors, see how these tier one kind of enterprises and businesses work, they were actually more equipped with the the kind of language or the lexicon or even the, the, the concepts to think of your business in a certain way. As Jimal says, India's women entrepreneurs are not a homogenous group. They come from a wide range of backgrounds. And intersectionality affects their experiences, interactions, and entrepreneurial success. Leeds' study also shows how female labor force participation is impacted when the firm is led by a woman. Women-led businesses uh, in a community actually lead to positive spillover in terms of female labor force participation and enterprise formation. This positive spillover was also reflected in Leeds' study sample, where group enterprises formed by self-help groups especially in traditionally feminine sectors such as food processing and tailoring, tended to hire women exclusively. On the other hand, this trend was not seen among the male entrepreneurs included in the study. These kinds of enterprises do only hire women, even though they are in certain sectors like say food processing or tailoring and things like that. And this, we don't see an equivalent in male-led enterprises, right? So this is something unique to women entrepreneurs. So once they become entrepreneurs in their own right, they tend to hire women. The study also found that state-run enabling organizations can play a vital role in facilitating women entrepreneurs' interactions with suppliers, mentors, and others in the ecosystem. One such organization is WeHub Foundation, which is located in Hyderabad, Telangana. WeHub, Women Entrepreneurs Hub, is a pioneering incubator set up to promote and foster women's entrepreneurship. Women are actually helped by these organizations because they get an extra boost with respect to these interactions in order to increase their customer base. So, for example, one of our respondents, she was able to sell reusable cloth bags that she tailored in her unit to the municipal corporation and make a recurring order of that on that larger scale because she was able to you know, leverage her contacts, say, at the bank or at KVIC, which is another state-run enabling center. And she was able to get secure a meeting with the municipal corporation. Jimol Unni has found this to be true in her work as well. In many of the conversations she's had through the course of her research, mentorship emerged as a significant need. They talked about the need for a mentor and that the presence of a mentor was a crucial factor. It's uh, helped them to start a business and to grow their business. Part of the reason is that this mentor or this role model, it actually helps them to take care of uncertainties because there's a whole lot of uncertainty with regard to Uh, starting an enterprise, continuing an enterprise, expanding an enterprise. And these mentors are able to sort of help them negotiate that. So when it comes to challenges and what we should tell policymakers and so on, I think this mentorship is a really, very important thing. It's important to remember that women entrepreneurs are also driven by their personal beliefs, especially when it comes to balancing work and life. Double burden is an established phenomenon in gender studies where women who are a part of the workforce or who do paid work or formal work outside of the house, they end up doing twice the amount of work as their male counterparts because they are expected to carry out responsibilities on the home front as well as care work and then on top of that go out and work right at the office or run your business etc. 
What we found was uh, that in our sample, none of the women entrepreneurs we spoke to actually reported double burden as a challenge that they were facing by virtue of being women entrepreneurs. The way they framed it was almost uh, sort of a non-negotiable or like a given area of their responsibilities. Time is always scarce when managing responsibilities at home with childcare or elders alongside work and professional ambitions. And it can be very difficult to make the right choice or to even know what the right choice is. There's almost this kind of, uh, there's a gendered perception around entrepreneurship. Across the sample, both male and female respondents that we spoke to uh, reported that there's almost like an innate quality that women have which makes them more suited to being entrepreneurs and those innate qualities that they list out for us are usually quite gendered right so women for example are very tolerant and they are very docile and they are good with soft skills and they can speak and build rapport very nicely there's also a almost like a glorification of women's ability to take care of the house as well as to run a business and you often find women themselves glorifying what is essentially double bot. They spoke of, you know, you know, women can have it all. Uh, we have the superpower. It's actually something that God has sort of given us uh, to be able to work on the home front, take care of our families, as well as, you know, run a business and achieve things outside of the house. So this is actually great for us. This perhaps highlights a gap in programs or policy interventions in the field of gender and entrepreneurship. We need to understand how norms and internalized perceptions affect gender and work. The stories we hear about successful businesses rarely tell us the full story of how the business actually got there. How much support did they receive? From whom? When did it arrive? And how long did it take? You see, the ones that we see in the media are those which have actually grown suddenly from nothing, got a huge venture capital funding and really grew. But that's not what the majority of the enterprises are. Majority of the enterprises are doing this very, 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 very slowly. And they have to be encouraged to be able to do that. And it's just not there in the policy framework. So that's one of our motivations for you know writing this or you know continuously researching this and continuously talking about it and writing about it. Studies like this one and the work of all of the researchers in this podcast show how numerous challenges affect women's prospects in business, from access to credit to asymmetries in skilling and information, to reforms, to social and cultural barriers, to the smallest of interactions. But the work is far from over. Researchers like Vidya talk about how our efforts to rebuild sectors will go amiss without the right data and information loop about these kinds of issues. It's also important that some of the organizations that are working at the ground level and researchers get access to this data and sort of can inform some of these organizations and, and government to, to sort of create more dynamic information and updated information-based programs that can help uh, women entrepreneurs specifically. If we care to include women, and if we actually mean that, we need to understand how women navigate their business ecosystems. Because ultimately, the outcomes will affect us all. Even when we were looking at a lot of the literature, I mean, there has been 
a move from a gender agnostic lens to a more gender sensitive one but i think the question to ask is why is this important and more specifically why now right uh, with the pandemic it's kind of become evident that you know in terms of economic growth in terms of livelihood opportunities you really cannot leave anyone behind and specifically women who are a key sort of demographic in the indian working age profile you really cannot leave them behind for listening thanks to dr jimol unni dr vidya sandrajan kanika bansal aishwarya joshi and mridulya narasimhan we have a lot more information on this study the stree program and leads other work in our show notes in the field season 3 is going to be released very soon stay tuned and subscribe to in the field so that you don't miss it when it drops find us on social media we're at in the field india on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.